Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio with me, Dominic Frisby. In today's program, Nick Barashev talks platinum and precious metals. Michael Johnson tells us about Beartooth Platinum. And Michael Hampton talks bonds and he explains why he thinks there's a possible slingshot coming in the gold market. You can now have each show automatically downloaded to your iTunes folder as soon as it comes out. Just go to CommodityWatchRadio.com and hit the subscribe with iTunes button on the left of your screen. And a reminder of our disclaimer. Nothing you hear in this program constitutes advice from me or anyone else to buy or sell anything. It is an expression of opinion only. Do your own research and make up your own minds. And in the interests of disclosure, we remind you that companies do pay a fee to appear on this show. Not a lot, but without that fee, we wouldn't have a show. So, let's crack on with the show. First up, it's Beartooth Platinum. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight. With music by Manolo Camp. Johnson is the president of Beartooth Platinum and the objective of Beartooth Platinum is to find, explore and develop two world-class properties, one in North America the, in the Stillwater Complex in Montana and the other in the Bushveld in South Africa. Michael, welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. Why don't we start by uh, you telling us a bit about Beartooth, what you do, and uh, what your plans are for the future. Well, thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Beartooth is a junior mining company on the Toronto Stock Exchange, on the Toronto Venture Exchange, and we're exploring for platinum group metals, platinum, palladium, rhodium, in two of the best uh, platinum camps in the world, namely the Stillwater Mountains in south-central Montana and in the Bushveld in, uh, in uh, South Africa. Both uh, are well-known. Uh, in fact, South Africa is the world, world's largest producer of platinum, produces about 79% of the platinum used worldwide, and the Stillwater Range uh, currently is mined, uh, uh, one uh, reef is mined by the Stillwater Mining Company, and that's the largest producer in North America of platinum and palladium. And so we feel that we've got a very great advantage being in those, uh, those two areas. In addition, both areas have a similar geologic model. Both are layered intrusive rocks uh, which were deposited uh, over three billion years ago, and as they slowly cooled, they, uh, they layered, they, crist they crystallized out in layers. And some of those layers contain anomalous amounts of platinum group metals. And these are now being mined in the Bushveld. There are two major reefs called the Morensky and the UG2 horizon, both of which have been mined. Uh, the Morensky started mining back in the early 20s, and the UG2 has been mined more recently. Uh, and they, can, they are very similar to two reefs found in the Stillwater Range. One, the JM Reef, which is currently being mined by Stillwater Mining Company at a rate of about uh, 600,000 ounces a year. And a second one we call the Beak Chromite, which we are actively exploring for. Uh, we first got on the uh, B, B chromite a couple of years ago when we found some very interesting soil samples over a trend of a couple of kilometers. Last year we drilled it, as well as increasing the length of the reef through additional soil geochem, 
and now we have a strike length of about 15 kilometers. The drilling of the one end of this uh, uh, reef uh, gave us some very good numbers. In fact, uh, our best intercept was half a meter at about uh, uh, 22 grams per ton of platinum plus palladium. In addition, we have some good rhodium numbers as well. And this is very typical of the Bushveld uh, in South Africa, where the platinum and some palladium uh, is usually accompanied by rhodium. And the rhodium uh, economically makes up between 20 and 50 percent of the economic value of the ore. And we're seeing some similar things at the B-chromite in Stillwater. Excellent stuff. Is your plan eventually to go into production yourselves or to get taken out? Well, we are a junior mining company, and although I have been in mining myself with other companies and for gold and silver, uh, the plan at the moment is to add value to this pro project and then uh, probably sell or joint venture with a major company that has the wherewithal to put the capital necessary to start a major mining operation in this part of the world. You said you used to mine for gold and silver. Why don't you tell us a bit about your background? Well, my background, I actually have a degree in geology from the University of London uh, here in England. And then, because there wasn't too much exploration uh, uh, available to me at that time, I uh, went over to the United States and uh, started working in Wyoming for uh, Amex uh, uh, Exploration Company, working porphyry copper. And then uh, a few years later, joined up with Homestake Mining Company uh, and worked uh, both in the U.S., South America, and Australia. And subsequent to that, uh, I was vice president of Greenstone Resources. And that, in that capacity, we uh, discovered, developed, and put about four mines together in, uh, in Central America. Uh, more recently, I put a couple of small, uh, high-grade uh, underground gold mines into operation in, uh, in North America, i.e. in uh, Idaho and California. And then recently, uh, Stan Barty, my chairman, called me up and asked if I was interested in, in uh, putting the ideas together for the uh, uh, Beartooth Stillwater property in Montana. And that's what I've been doing since then. I see. So it was him that uh, drew you to platinum. That is correct, yes. And not knowing anything about platinum, uh, I knew immediately that I had to get somebody that did. And I uh, found and uh, hired as my chief geologist a fellow by the name of Dr. John Finley, who, li who is. Uh, Dr. Finley uh, lives in uh, um, Vancouver and has experience in platinum group metals all over the world, namely in Canada in South America, uh, in South Africa, as well as in India. And he brings uh, excellent uh, um, career, excellent uh, ideas into the, uh, into the game of exploration and developing of this particular silver, uh, particular uh, platinum group metals in both uh, Stillwater and the Bushveld. And do you have an, an outlook for platinum and platinum group metals? Yeah, I'm very bullish on platinum and platinum group metals. The biggest use for platinum, palladium, and rhodium is in catalytic converters. And more and more uh, countries are turning to catalytic converter technology to try and clean up their air, especially around the major cities. Uh, recently, South Africa has gone that way. And I understand that here in Europe, all the uh, diesels are going to be turning to catalytic uh, converter technology in the very near future. Uh, and as about half the vehicles are diesel in this part of the world, that's going to be a very big demand for platinum group metals. How much platinum gets used in a catalytic converter? Normally in a car, it's about 7 grams. In big trucks, it can be up to 20 grams. And so 20 grams... No, there's about 31, 32 grams in an ounce. So it's about two-thirds of an ounce in the trucks and about uh, just under one-third in, in, in automobiles. So if uh, platinum is currently trading at about $14,000... 
and um, fourteen hundred. Sorry, fourteen hundred dollars. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Platinum's currently trading at fourteen hundred dollars, and um, uh, I think it's actually twenty-eight grams uh, in an ounce. It depends which ounce. We're we're, uh, we're using it's Avoirdupois or Troy ounces. Oh, I see. <laughs> okay. So okay. Well, let me. Well, it's thirty-one point one zero four, if you like. So I we're believe. looking at so, yes. um, <laughs> nearly a thousand dollars worth of platinum in a, in the in a in the, the catalytic converter of a truck. That's correct. Are we going to be seeing a time when um, thieves are going to cotton onto this and start stealing catalytic converters? Well, in fact, as I understand it, although I have no first-hand knowledge, I believe that thieves sometimes do that, and certainly in salvage yards where there will be a concentration of these things, uh, I believe that has happened. As for cars on the street having their catalytic converters uh, taken off, well, I suppose that could happen, yes. Once, uh, I suppose once... Uh, once thieves start doing that, you know that the uh, precious metals bull market has passed into the mainstream. <laughs> yeah, however, though, I don't know how easy the technology to strip the uh, strip the uh, PGMs from the catalytic converter would be. It, that might be a very complex process. So, so uh, 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 if you turned up at the uh, pro- reprocessing with with all these uh, uh, mufflers, you might uh, you might have some questions to answer. <laughs> so, uh, why don't we talk about uh, your company's structure now? What's your market cap? Our market cap is about 32 million at, at this point in time. We've been trading between about uh, uh, earlier on this year about uh, 10 cents, uh, and more recently we just topped out at 17 cents. Right now, although I haven't looked at it in a few days, we're about 15 and a half cents. I see. And um, so, how many shares outstanding? We have about uh, uh, 140 million shares uh, outstanding, and fully diluted, we have about 165 million uh, shares. How much cash have you got? Currently, right now, we have about $3.2 million in the bank, which is more than enough for the proposed exploration program in Stillwater this year. And also, uh, I would like to spend about a half a million dollars on, on a property we've just picked up, just got the exploration license for in the Bushveld uh, in, in South Africa. Why don't you tell us about uh, your program <coughs> for the next year or so? Okay, yeah, that was rather interesting. We actually had an offer on a, on a program about uh, the end of uh, 2005, and we had a three-month uh, to do some due diligence on it. We did. We did some drilling and found that it uh, didn't have the, uh, the uh, uh, in fact, the zone had been faulted out. So we, we didn't take up the option. But in doing the research on that property, we found uh, some uh, government-sponsored aerial uh, geophysics. And in looking at that aerial geophysics, we found another area of a very interesting anomaly and were able to find that there were no uh, uh, um, exploration permits on that area. So we picked up some exploration permits, because in South Africa you need the ex- you need to have an expir- a valid exploration permit before you can uh, look into the government archives to see what other work has been done in that area. Well, we've done that now and found that there's no drilling in that area that intercepts the zone we're interested in. And so this summer we're going to do a, uh, a ground-based geophysical survey and then follow it up probably in the fall after we finish our drilling at Stillwater this year with drilling in, the, in that project in the Bushveld. In, um, obviously in North America there's a very little geopolitical risk and South Africa has one of the most rich precious metals mining cultures in the world. Do you see any geopolitical risk there? Uh, I think there may be a little bit more geopolitical risk than here, but because, as you say, that's one of the richest natural resource areas in the world, I don't believe uh, that is going to suffer greatly, and I think uh, there's going to be uh, very careful uh, um, uh, steps into the future uh, for that government in South Africa. 
I was about to say there are hundreds. I, I always ask this question at the end of the interviews. I say there are hundreds of uh, mining companies out there. Why should we choose yours? Mm -hmm. But in, in the case of platinum, there aren't that many platinum <laughs> miners and explorers. But <laughs> nevertheless, why should we choose Beartooth ahead of any other? Well, Beartooth is totally focused on platinum palladium group uh, metals. We have no other interests. Uh, when I joined uh, uh, Beartooth as their uh, president a few years ago, we did have some gold and silver assets, which I actually got rid of and just sold. Uh, and so we're concentrating solely on platinum group metals. In addition, we have our foot in two of the world's best camps for uh, platinum group metals. And I've got a very good uh, team around me that are very knowledgeable about exploring for and developing this type of uh, commodity in these types of deposits. So I think we offer uh, maximum bang for our buck, if you like. And if I may add, you're still fairly cheap. <laughs> That's true. We are still fairly cheap. <laughs> but hopefully that will change too. <laughs> Michael Johnson, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com Barashev is a precious metals expert of many years experience and uh, is president of the Bullion Management Group and he's talking to me now from his offices in Toronto. Nick, welcome to the show. Why don't we start with the recent pullback that we've seen in the gold and silver markets. Gold today uh, closed at just under 660. Uh, what's your opinion of what's going on there? Well, there's been uh, several things that uh, we can attribute that to. Uh, first of all, it, it seems that during this bull market, we've had um, uh, a kind of a struggle in, at the different resistance levels of, you know, initially at 300, then 400, 500, and 600. So now we're, uh, the, the prices are struggling in terms of gold to get through 700. But what um, uh, we could attribute possibly um, more than the usual amount is that we've had significant sales by central banks, um, France and Spain particularly. Uh, Spain has sold off 40 tons a month over the last two months, and France has sold 60 tons. Why, why have they been selling? Well, in Spain's case, it's um, because they, Spain has the biggest um, current account deficit in the Western world, which runs at nine and a half percent of GDP. That's quite a and big claim for fame. That's right. So they're having to liquidate foreign um, currency reserves as well as bullion to just meet their various um, foreign obligations. Uh, and, and because of the euro, they're not, you know, in control of their own money, so they're kind of within the, within the system there. Um, the, the overall sales are still within the 500 tons allowed by the Washington Agreement for this year, uh, but just came all kind of at once. And last year, for example, when a similar amount of sales actually of a, of a lesser amount happened in May, and the gold price went from 720 to 5, 560 approximately, this year we haven't seen the same amount of pullback, even though the sales have been higher. So it's actually a, a, a positive sign, and to anybody that understands precious metals, it's a rare gift handed to you by 
the uh, French and Spanish central banks. And do you know, apart from your good self, who's been buying? Well, I, th- I think uh, a lot of... Right now, we see the buying as as only the kind of the leading-edge smart money, and these are like private um, individuals and family offices. We don't see the institutions in the precious metals market yet. I see. And um, the, the French presumably were selling for a similar reason to the Spanish? Uh, it, it wasn't posted why the you know why France decided to sell and you know what the timing was and so on. It it seems like um, central banks have the ability to sell at the worst possible times and sell in a manner that gets them the lowest price. Uh, as an Englishman, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I've I've heard that there's been a lot of press coverage over the UK sales of uh, half of its gold in the... Uh, Brown's Bottom, we call it. Well, you couldn't have sold at a lower price than, you know, with, you know if you tried harder. Maybe. Well, he's in charge now. <laughs> so, um, one of the beauties, I suppose, of the uh, platinum market is that it's not something that is sold by central banks. Well, that's right. There's... there's um, Really, very little, if any, above-ground stocks to sell. They're, they used to be, but they've all been depleted. So right now, it's kind of a balanced market between supply and demand. What's what's produced and what's available in terms of scrap recycling is all there is. Um, we've tried to find out who you know who has above-ground stocks, but we think that we may have. Um, one of the largest above-ground platinum stocks in the world, and we're only holding about $35 million worth. When you, so see, you, when you say we, do you mean your... your the Art Bullion Fund, um, I see. As, as one of the components, um, we have about $35 million in platinum, and I, I haven't been able to find anybody that has a larger stockpile. So it goes to show you how small the market is. And are people, uh, are most of the people who are buying the metal, are they buying it uh, as a store of wealth or are they buying it uh, for industrial purposes? Well, it's primarily industrial purposes. It hasn't, it hasn't uh, moved significantly from what we can gather to, uh, to investment demand. Even though it's been the best performing precious metals, uh, you know, among gold, silver, and platinum, and amongst the other platinum group metals, palladium, iridium, um, uh, etc., et it's it's outperformed them all during this bull market. Hasn't rhodium outperformed it? Um, well, it, it's it's been very very close. This um, like last year, for example, or sorry, this year to date, we're at 17% in platinum and. Of fourteen percent in rhodium, ah, so it, it's it's come close, and each of the uh, of the precious metals have um, many unique applications, which in most cases can't be um, changed to another commodity of any kind. So, if you need to produce this or manufacture this, you have to use the the particular metal involved. I see. Now, um, your bullion fund is uh, predominantly interested in uh, monetary metals, and platinum isn't 
predominantly a monetary metal. So why have you cho chosen to stockpile it? Well, the the concept was to um, to to provide a, a kind of a diversification within the precious metals group, and um, clearly gold and silver have both monetary attributes and commodity attributes, and platinum has as well. It's it's been produced as as money in different countries throughout history. Um, the other metals don't have any monetary history, so that's why we limited it to the three metals. The other issue was that we wanted that um, that our fund would form part of core holdings, so when it, it isn't intended for trading, and we we physically hold the bullion in storage with Scotia Makata here in Toronto. And the idea being that if the economy is doing well, then the platinum and silver commodity demand would keep prices up. And if the economy is not doing well, then gold and silver would would function in their monetary roles. So either way, two-thirds of the portfolio would be going in the right direction. Um, in a severe monetary crisis and all three metals would would rise in value you know against the paper currencies do you have an overall target price for gold silver and platinum in the in the coming years is there a price at which you would sell uh, we would know we don't have it in our mandate to sell in 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 our fund investors purchase and redeem units um, and if necessary, we would then sell bullion when investors redeemed and buy it when they purchase. So um, whether we sell or not is dictated by investors. Our, our fund is purpose, purposely structured that we don't make any of the traditional investment decisions. We don't market time it. We don't lease it. We don't hedge it so that investors in buying the fund are getting pure exposure to bullion rather than mine or anybody else's skills as a portfolio manager. I understand that, uh, like many, you're concerned about the fact that uh, uh, there is no major national currency that is backed by anything other than uh, people's belief in that particular government, i.e. there's no currency that's backed by anything tangible. Um, is this a concern of yours? Well, all that, all it's done, and, and you could really trace traces back to 1971 when Richard Nixon um, essentially they they call it closing the gold window, but he essentially defaulted on the U.S.'s obligations to convert U.S. dollars back into gold from other countries. And since that time, then the the growth in the in the money supply in virtually all countries ha has gone exponential. Like, for instance, in the U.S., the money supply in 1971 uh, was, was a total of $800 billion. Now it increases by over $800 billion a year. So as the, as the money supply increases, the purchasing power declines. Um, and the same thing is happening, you know, a, a you know, across the globe, we've got. Um, if you reconstruct the USM3, which some people have done, you get 12% increase in money supply. 
Um, Canada, the Eurozone, I believe, are, are 10. I believe Britain's at 14. Uh, China and India are 18 and 20, and Russia's at 49. And Zimbabwe, I think, is 3,700. What are the consequences of this global money supply growth going to be, and how are they going to unfold? Well, there doesn't seem to be um, any signs of any kind of a happy solution because the the it has to start with the politicians, you know, dealing with balanced budgets. And you know, I don't know many politicians that are talking about that in any country throughout the world. The U.S. has has an extra problem because they have unfunded um, Medicare and Social Security obligations amounting to about $50 trillion. Uh, so that money, uh, either you have to tax it or reduce benefits, neither of which is politically acceptable, or they have to print the money. So over the next 20 years, it's likely that M3 in the U.S., which is $12 trillion today, has to increase by $50 trillion just for that alone. And that's not counting the, the normal federal budget deficit or the trade deficit in the U.S., so we're just going to see the the cost of everything go up. That's right, I th- and this is where the the issue of inflation, the true measure of inflation, is the increase in money supply, which then causes increase in prices later. But you first print the money, and then the you know the prices rise to meet it down the road. Will wages, if r- wages rise as well, does it matter? Well. It, eventually, it, it does because it, it, it doesn't allow people to, to to stay pace. And again, if if you want to look at a worst case scenario of runaway inflation in the modern world, we have Zimbabwe, you know, happening right before our eyes. But I, I guess the, the the more popularly known inflation was the German inflation in in the twenties, um, where Gold went from 75 marks an ounce to 23 trillion marks an ounce in a space of about three years. What is so brutal about the situation in Zimbabwe is that in, in most cases, in, in Weimar, Germany, or in Argentina at the beginning of, of this century, governments or their people got the situation under control relatively quickly. But in Zimbabwe, it's just gone on and on and on. Well, that's right. But the other unique part of this situation uh, as a historical example is this is the first time that we have a global uh, fiat currency system. When Germany had its problems and the UK and the US were still on the gold standard, for example. But now we've got the entire world on a fiat currency system with the US dollar as the reserve currency. Um, that, that's that's you know in, increasingly you know being printed and exported throughout the world effectively. When I listen to these monetary arguments, Nick, I, I kind of I think it, they, they make complete sense to me, and and I can't see anything but a kind of global hyperinflationary scenario. But the difference is, is that I, I just think there's too much 
intelligence and too much competence around for a kind of global Zimbabwe to happen. It's just kind of too bearish an outlook for me. Well, the 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 issue is 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 to to correct it. It it's it needs a political will to do so. And you know whether the the politicians in your country or ours or in the United States. I mean, is anybody talking that even? I don't think they even do get it. it. Well, even if they did, though, it it it, it requires a certain amount of um, unpleasant medicine that that isn't going to be accepted well by the voting public. That's mm. the problem. I'm desperately trying to get on the show George Osborne, who is the shadow chancellor of the Exchequer. He's uh, the um, mm-hmm. chancellor for the for the Conservative Party, who some say mm-hmm. are likely to win the next election, in which case he will become the chancellor of the Exchequer. I'm, I'm desperately trying to, to get him on the show and ask him these type of questions to see if he to see what his monetary understanding is. But uh, mm-hmm. as yet, no reply. <laughs> no, these are, like I say, these are hard uh political issues to deal with and that's why um, you know without looking at everything in a doom and gloom scenario you can look at the the old Wall Street saying that you know talks about put 10% of your money in gold and hope it doesn't work I understand you are currently advising people to put more than 10% of their their net wealth into into precious metals well we've actually had an, a, a couple of um, studies and, and reports one one we commissioned a study in two thousand and five by Ibbotson and Associates, and they're considered the the asset allocation gurus and they're based out of the United States so without looking at any of the kind of vulnerability issues or anything like that, the question was what percentage uh, should gold, silver, and platinum form um, to improve the efficiency of portfolios. And the answer from Ibbotson came back that in a conservative a, a portfolio, which would be largely bonds, you should have 7%, 12% in a, um, a medium portfolio, and and then 17% in, in an aggressive portfolio. Now, that was simply based on nothing going wrong and everything, uh, you know, going along accordingly, and that that just improved the the returns and reduced some of the risks. Uh, another gentleman that I subscribe to is David Ranson at Wainwright Associates, who looked at how much precious metals is necessary to insulate a portfolio from inflation. And his uh, conclusions were that you needed 18% for a bond portfolio and 47% for an equity portfolio just to break even during a high inflation period like the 70s. How much in real estate? Well, real estate's one of those kind of hard, a combination, hard asset, financial asset. Um, you know, my background is actually in real estate and um People, you know, think I'm a gold bug, but but in fact I'm a real estate bug. But right now we've we've got a kind of a distorted real estate market in most parts of the world due due to the um, favorable and lax mortgage standards. Um, so it's not a normal, you know, rise in the price of real estate, and I think we're going to have a significant correction in real estate. 
um, you know, in the not too distant future. But if if the cost of everything is going up and we're living in an era of easy money and you want to be in tangible assets, one of the kind of uh, anomalies of that is the, the same people who are predicting what I've just said and future monetary crises are also predict, predicting a collapse in real estate. How, how, how do the two... You see, normally, uh, real estate is correlated to inflation. So if you have rising inflation, it, it rise. The difference this time around... In particularly in parts of of the the U.S. and I'm, I'm not sure to what extent that happened in the U.K. But but the a lot of people borrowed money to buy real estate that that sh- shouldn't have qualified for the loans. And as those loans are going going into default, which is a subprime mortgage problem in the U.S., then you're getting a surplus of of housing on the market. So that that's that's really the uh, the issue. So now the Fed in the U.S. has um, got a dilemma in that: do they raise interest rates to protect the dollar, or do they lower interest rates to prevent further defaults and a collapse in the real estate market? Well, our real estate market keeps on going up. It mystifies me, but it was up something like 20% last year in London and mm-hmm. uh, shows, despite numerous recent interest rate rises, show, shows no signs of, of slowing down. Now, let, let's, turn our, let's turn the conversation back to platinum. You wrote a, an excellent article, by the way, which I recommend uh, all our listeners to read, called Platinum Dark Horse Bright Future. And uh, anyone who's listening, just type that into Google and uh, you'll find uh, the article. Platinum means little silver. That's right. Let's talk about the mining of, of, of platinum. Is, is this an easy thing? Well, the, the unusual thing about platinum, unlike um, gold and silver, is that 80% of the world's platinum production is concentrated in South Africa. No other metal you know, has that degree of vulnerability. Even palladium is is only 50% in Russia. When you uh, say vulnerable, you mean to geopolitical risk? That's right. See, in the other I mean, metals, is... if one country has a problem, well, silver, gold, they're produced all over the world and relatively diverse in terms of production. But no other metal is so concentrated... Uh, in in one location, in in this case South Africa, as we have in platinum, uh, and like I say, it's it's close to eighty percent of the entire production of platinum comes out of South Africa, with um, something like nine percent is uh, is then you know from Russia, and and the rest of the world is is the balance. So that's a unique vulnerability that if anything happens to South Africa because of political unrest or, or you know, nationalization of assets or anything like that, then we're, we're going to see platinum go to prices beyond imagination. What if, if um, the, 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 the real problem is the higher the price goes, the more likely uh, the uh, Russians or the South African governments are to say, oh, actually, I want a piece of that. And uh, mm-hmm. so the, it's kind of the higher the price goes, the, the more riskier uh, those right. mining stocks become. What about Stillwater in uh, Montana? How much of uh, global 
uh, platinum. Well, Stillwater is primarily uh, a palladium producer. They're they're very little in terms of platinum, and and from what I recall, Stillwater was purchased by Russian interests um, a year or two ago. And with um, palladium, uh, obviously, it's considerably cheaper than platinum at the moment. Are right. the uh, industrial uses pretty much interchangeable? Well, not really. And the main industrial use for for platinum is in the catalytic conversion converters and other um, devices used um, um, for air purification and so on. The main difference between platinum and palladium is it's only platinum that can be used for diesel engines, whereas in gasoline engines you can use palladium or platinum. Now, although it's not the case in North America, the, most of the rest of the world is predominantly diesel-driven. Uh, and now, for instance, in North America and probably likewise in other countries, there's new emission regulations that require for diesel trucks right now the addition of of platinum filters to you know to filter the particulate matter i.e. the black smoke from diesels so that's a second uh platinum product that has to for the moment be only on the on the heavy duty trucks but likely will come you know be a requirement for for all cars as well <laughs> so what happens if governments start making all sorts of uh green laws you know you have to have this these this certain amount of platinum in a catalytic converter meanwhile the russian and the south african governments nationalize their the uh, their platinum industries in most of the precious metals you know when it, uh, other than jewelry when you look at the industrial applications the 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 price of you know platinum in terms of a car is a relatively small and insignificant amount. There's, I think, a third of an ounce used in a typical catalytic converter. Uh, so it's a relatively small amount per car. So even if the price was to quadruple, it it wouldn't be the end of the world for, you know, for what the the end cost of a car might be. Uh, by the way, it's even more pronounced in in the electronic applications where you're using minuscule amounts of either silver or platinum as the case dictates. Uh, so, you know, it, it's relatively price insensitive in those kind of applications. And, you know, if you have to have it, you have to have it. And that's the end of it. I see. It's a conductor of electricity, is it? Yeah, platinum, platinum has a, a number of uh, applications in terms of electrical conductivity and, and then if it's it's um, being looked at for fuel cells things like that uh, chemical processing but it has a wide variety of uh, electronic applications that are being used but it's a minuscule amount in each application is a similarly small amount uh, used in chemical processing and glass and uh... right so if the price does rise it it it, it doesn't add a huge amount to the end product. Now, other, other than, of course, jewelry, which is all platinum, then jewelry will rise and fall. And last year, the jewelry demand for platinum fell considerably, but was overtaken by the demand for catalytic converters.
I mean, I saw a presentation about platinum and platinum group metals last week, and uh, one of the analysts suggested that this year uh, we would, for the first time, see a supply of platinum that exceeded demand. Meanwhile, we're seeing higher prices. Do you have any comment on that? Well, that's that's what, but it's it's a very small amount of surplus, and and we've been running at a considerable deficit for a number of years. Um, the surplus can evaporate, you know, in very very quickly. Just uh, Zimbabwe is a producer of platinum, and right now most of the mines that I've read about are shutting down because they can't buy any oil. So it's that kind of a, a dilemma. So you know, a, a slight disruption just out of Zimbabwe. If they can't keep producing, then then the surplus instantly evaporates. And would you care to speculate what the 2007 high for platinum will be? Well, even um, people like Johnson Matthew are, are talking about that we should hit 1400 this year. So that's that's a conservative estimate with um, you know nothing really going wrong. Where are we now? Uh, 1280, 1288 today, I think. But that, that's for the balance of the year. We've already had a 17% rise to date this year. Do you think we're going to get the May correction in the precious metals, um, anything like we did last year, or do you think uh, suddenly we might see a, a rise in the precious metal prices starting in May, much as we did, uh, was it 2004, where the, the markets found a bottom in May and then moved up? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of speculation typically... That's what happens. We see highs in May, like from a seasonal point of view, and then, and and we don't see another high until the fall. Right now, people are saying, well, we could have this reverse, and it could reverse in the next few days because we've got options expiring on the 24th, and typically the price of precious metals drops ahead of options expiry, but. Some of the speculation is, is that we might have a short covering rally instead. Uh, so it's 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 never easy to predict uh, short-term moves in precious metals because the markets are relatively thin and 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 you know can be changed almost at will in either direction. But nevertheless, it's interesting to note that the platinum market has, if I'm correct in saying, exceeded its all-time highs, whereas gold and silver are yet to make it there. That's right. Yeah, the, the platinum high um, was reached uh, last November, um, and and that was at 13.50 an ounce. So that was the uh, exceeding the previous high, which was 10.70 in 1980. Uh, were were gold's um, 850 intraday high and silver's 50 intraday high are still a long way off. So but you might argue cases, that. Sorry, in all cases, the inflation-adjusted highs are are still way off. They're they're all in excess of two thousand dollars an ounce for gold and platinum to reach the in, you know inflation-adjusted highs. Mm-hmm. So you might argue that platinum uh, is a leader in this bull market. That's right, it's, and it's a leader um, in terms of it's the first metal to start rising in prices, which it did in this bull market. 
and it's a it's a it's the leading indicator in inflation according to again David Ranson at Wainwright. Uh, he his studies determined that gold and silver were 12 month leading indicators of rising inflation, and platinum was a 16 month leading indicator of rising inflation. That's interesting. And in the 70s, did platinum move ahead of gold and silver, or did it move kind of concurrently? Well, it it didn't rise in the 70s. Um, silver rose 2,400 percent, gold 2,300 percent, and platinum about 950 percent. Um, so it didn't rise as much as as um, gold and silver. But the thing to remember is in the 70s, there, there was very little, if any, demand for catalytic converters in many of the applications that are uh, in use today. So we have a different situation um, as we move forward from the industrial demand for platinum. If we couple that with investor demand, uh, platinum you know, could uh, very well outperform silver and gold. Okay, and uh, finally, Nick, um, is platinum, for those of our listeners that are confused, is platinum white gold? No. There we Uh, go. White (laughs) gold is still gold. It uh, is a different color. Platinum, uh, when it comes to jewelry, is, um, you know, entirely different and, you know, many times more expensive. Does it tarnish? Uh, no, platinum, silver tarnishes, but platinum, platinum doesn't. It's very it's similar to gold in that respect that there's no tarnishing of uh, platinum. In jewelry terms, it's the preferred metal in in uh, Asian countries. That's that's where a lot of uh, jewelry demand would come from. Nick Barashev, it's been a real pleasure. Um, as we close, uh, why don't you give out uh, your website address so that uh, if people want to find out more about your fund, they can. Um, sure. The the web web address is just bullionfund, as one word, dot com. As well as your fund, Nick, you have a weekly newsletter. Is that right? That's right. We have a, a newsletter called the Bullion Buzz that um, we publish weekly and People can just go to our website and, and sign up for it. And it um, provides uh, a summary of usually six um, articles on you know precious metals and the economy and money and things like that. And it's convenient because we summarize it in one paragraph and provide the link to the article so it, people can, can review six articles very quickly and then look at which ones they want to read in greater depth. And uh, just looking at your photo, Nick, uh, you have something of the uh, Albert Einstein about you. <laughs> That's what people have said, although uh, a couple of... There actually was an article um, uh, written by uh, by one of the, the mainstream publications here in Toronto, and that's what he called me, the Al- Albert Einstein of Bay Street. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway... Nick, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, once again, I recommend all listeners to read your article, Platinum, Dark Horse, Bright Future. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby.
Michael Hampton, founder of Green Energy Investors, now Global Edge Investors, private trader and member of Mensa, is talking to me now. And uh, Michael, what's your view on the platinum markets at the moment? Well, uh, we were talking about this a little bit before the show, and uh, I think people want to look at a chart on platinum, and I, I will post one on Global Edge. And uh, basically what we see is the platinum price is poised on a uh, moving average. In this particular chart, it's an 11-week moving average. And like many of these uh, uh, markets, commodity markets, it's poised on a nice edge. It may hold its support uh, and then go up and test the old highs or go higher, or it may break, break down. Um, I'm not sure which it's going to do. But uh, I don't think we're going to see the same cycle as we saw last year. And I want to t tell you some reasons why I believe that. The chart that I'd like to turn people to is a chart of gold expressed in euros. And if you look at the chart on GEI, you'll see right now um, the gold in euros price is about, um, it closed at 490. That's 490 euros per ounce. And like the gold and dollars chart, it's been in a long triangle, which goes all the way back to May 2006, when the gold price peaked. Well, the gold price in euros peaked at 566 euros. And since then, it's tracing out what's known as a triangle. And any Elliott waiver will tell you that triangles typically break down into five moves, A, B, C, D, E. And each of those moves uh, will typically be further subdivided into ABC. And so if you look at this chart, you're going to see a nice five-wave uh, five movement from 560 euros to 429, up to 533, back down to 447. And then from 447, we went up to 525. And now from that 525, which was the end of the D wave, we are seeing an E wave, which will be composed of an ABC. The A is in place already, which took it down to 479 euros. There was a rally back up above 510. And we're now in the final part, the E wave, which could be ending anywhere between the current level, uh, actually around 480 we saw in recent days, or uh, down to four, probably about 460. So somewhere here in the next few days uh, or possibly weeks, we should be at seeing the end of this E-wave. And uh, in fact, um, uh, a good level to end the E-wave we've seen already. So we may already see here or in the next few days the end of the E-wave. Now what happens after this triangle is completed is the market should move up to find new highs. So that means we would expect to see the euro price of gold rise above 566, perhaps far above 566. And uh, that movement may come rather quickly. Um, so once this triangle is complete, we should see a very sharp movement upwards. Um, and that could last anywhere from a few weeks to perhaps a year, year and a half. And it will be a very exciting ride. Um, so I'm watching that with great uh, interest. Now, most traders and investors think of gold in terms of dollars, not in terms of euros. Why are you looking at it in terms of euros? Well, I do look at it in terms of dollars as well, obviously. But 
what's happening now is um, the dollar is losing a lot of its uh, supporters. And uh, I think we want to think about the Chinese here and what's going on with the Chinese. I mean, I think everybody's been reading the paper and seeing pictures of Madame Wu Yi from China uh, talking to uh, Hank Paulson and members of Congress and so forth about how the Chinese are going to let their currency float. But it's, it's um, and they have let their currency float, but let it fall more, uh, sorry, drop more uh, dramatically. But what people seem to forget is, uh, yes, maybe a stronger, um, uh, maybe a stronger uh, renminbi is, is good for the U.S. in many ways. What has, has been happening in the past is that money has been circulated back to the U.S., which is why the, the Chinese currency has, has remained uh, uh, sort of flat with the dollars. The money's been coming back to the U.S. The Chinese have been buying uh, it's called immunizing their currency. They've been using their extra dollars to buy bonds in the U.S., and they've mostly been buying treasury bonds, and they've been buying um, they've been buying the obligations of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, and that's what that's done. Is for the last two or three years, that's helped to keep long-term rates down. And I think, as you recall, we spoke about in an earlier show that long-term rates are now moving higher. And it looks to me like they're on their way to 5% or higher. And uh, what's going on there is the Chinese are now beginning to move their dollar assets out of bonds into other asset classes. So um, the, the reason, I think, that the bond long-term bond rate is going up and breaking up to the upside, and let me give you some figures on that. I'll just look at a chart here. TNX is what I'm looking at. That's the 10-year... Uh, treasury, and I think that's exactly the one we talked about in a previous show. Um, and that closed on Friday, yesterday, at 4.86%. And uh, it's it's certainly going and has gone, actually, to 4.9%. That's the first, uh, you know, stopping point, if you will, uh, on the way to what I think will be 5% or higher. Um, and... Um, that is a movement from 4.47 to 4.9. So we've already seen a move of uh, almost, well, of 0.4% uh, in long-term rates. That may not sound like much, but believe me, that's a dramatic movement. So anyway, what's happening is the Chinese are now, uh, they have seven or $800 billion worth of Treasury bonds and Freddie and Fannie Mac securities. They've now allocated $200 billion of that to other assets. And they announced last weekend that $3 billion out of that $200 billion they're moving is going into a Blackstone private equity fund. And I think they've maybe quietly been buying U.S. equities, perhaps not uh, the stock index, but equities that are meaningful to them, like commodity producers and so forth. Would $3 billion move the uh, U.S. stock markets? Is that enough to move them to keep this uh, upside momentum going? Oh, no. Well, I mean, the $3 billion is what what the Chinese are putting into one fund, the Blackstone Private Equity Fund. So they, they have a total of $700 billion, which uh, is mostly in bonds. $200 billion of that they've now put into a separate agency which in the, within the Chinese government. And they've told that agency to go out and find sensible investments. And uh, one of those sensible investments, uh, you know, 
just over 1% of that $200 billion is going into. Uh, but $200 billion is a huge amount of money, and that would be the world's largest hedge fund. I mean, and, the uh, problem is, Michael, you hear all these figures bandied about billion dollars here, trillion dollars there. The, the numbers kind of start to lose their meaning after a while. Well, yes, they do. Um, well, the, the thing to relate that to, I suppose, is, um, and you know, a lot of money gets geared up as well. So, yeah. Let's consider it. If, if the Chinese gave all of that $200 billion to an aggressive hedge fund, and there isn't such a hedge fund of that size, that this is already 10 times as big as a rather large hedge fund, but if they gave all of that $200 billion to one brand-new huge hedge fund, those hedge funds use, you know, use leverage too. So if that hedge fund goes up and gears up 4 to 1 or 5 to 1, suddenly that $200 billion might be you know $1 trillion. Believe me, one trillion dollars can can keep a market going quite a long way. You could almost buy a house in London for that. <laughs> yes, maybe even two. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> that's another story. But anyway, um, it's it's um, it's a huge amount of money, and as they move this money into new asset classes, not only is the bond market going to weaken from this, but whatever asset they move into. It's going to it's going to move up as well. I mean, there's the old saying about what happens when the you know the elephant sits down in the swimming pool. Well, the water level goes up. So if Mr. Elephant China goes from one swimming pool into another, you're going to see one the water level uh, you know prices of bonds go down, and you're going to see the water level in the new swimming pool go up. So that's what's you know that's I think what's driving some of these markets. We we talk about uh, a lot of. Uh uh, talk about what's China going to do with its surplus of dollars. What are the Japanese doing with their surplus of dollars? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the Japanese obviously are, are, are recycling their um, extra currency back. Uh, if they weren't, then you'd see a much stronger yen. And the yen at the moment is very weak, and the yen is probably a very good buy here right now. Um, because you know it won above 120, which uh, sorry, that's the dollar above uh, 120 is a very good short. Uh, mm -hmm. In other words, you get a 120 or 121 yen per dollar. That's a good level to sell your dollars and buy yen. Um, and on the charts, it looks good too. Uh, so the yen is that weak um, because the Japanese are obviously recycling their extra dollars back into other currencies, probably back in the dollars. So simply from the, and the you know, the, the uh, Japanese are not get, getting the same, it's a funny situation actually, the Japanese are not getting the same pressure from the American Congress that the Chinese are getting. Um, and uh, I'm not really sure why that's the case. But They've got as many case. dollars, don't they? Well, nearly as many. I think they have something like 70% as many foreign currency reserves, and perhaps 70% as many dollars as the, uh, as the Chinese have. Um, and no doubt they're enjoying huge trade uh, balance surpluses with the U.S. But the Chinese surplus with the U.S. is, is much bigger. It's probably double. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't have the figures in front of me, but it's probably double the uh, Chinese, sorry, the Japanese surplus. Yeah. So. The Chinese are the ones that are taking the heat. The Chinese are the ones that are beginning to let their currency strengthen. And the Chinese are the ones that 
have decided they got too many dollars in bonds and so forth, and they're beginning to move those uh, assets into into other currencies. I suppose the gold bulls can dream, and I dream, about some of that money coming into gold. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if they start moving billions of dollars into gold or gold shares, we're certainly going to see it in the gold price. If you, I mean, I have to say, if I'm a... Uh, a bod in China and I've been given a load of money uh, to to put somewhere you're going to have storage space warehousing stuff isn't going to be a problem I mean it would make sense to just buy barrels of oil and bars and bars and bars of copper and then you think oh we're running out of space so let's put it into precious metals that takes up less space I mean it really would make sense to just simply buy tangible assets that at some stage will get used well look that's a really good point and it's happening um i I mean i'm aware of this i don't know how much people would be aware of it in the uk or the u.s but the chinese have a second um they have already filled up one of their strategic oil reserves and they've recently finished building a second one and they're now over the next i think they've announced over the next year 18 months they're going to fill that up so the chinese are a bid in the oil market buying oil right now I mean they're planning to buy X number of barrels I forgot what the number was per week to begin to fill up that reserve and that's going to keep some upward pressure under under the oil price and what else are they doing they're buying things like there's there's a bid that uh, sorry there's a story going around that they're going to be buying uranium companies and um, some people believe they're they've already made some acquisitions in Kazakhstan they're going to be buying um, you know, a, a uranium com- a company oh, that's interesting. production in, in Kazakhstan. Did you hear one of Gordon Brown's uh, things last week is that he announced we might have 60 new nuclear power stations in the UK? 60's a lot. <laughs> it's a hell of a lot. Where's he going to find the money? He's going to have to print a load of money to do that. Well, and he's going to have to fiddle the... <laughs> but the, what's really interesting, and I was talking to somebody, who, you know, just yesterday who runs a uranium company who was visiting Hong Kong, and he was telling me that, you know, what he's seeing is he's seeing the Chinese uh, are basically changing the nature of the market. And the way they're doing that is they're doing a lot of deals away from the spot market. And I think Jim Pupava spoke about this as well. They basically are buying companies. And so by buying those companies, uh, they, 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 the production will then go directly to China. It may not go through the spot market at all. It may just go directly to China. And they're signing long-term contracts in places like Africa and the rest of the world to buy goods at a fixed price long-term. Maybe they refix the price every year or so. So once again, product moves off the spot market. So the spot market will become less and less meaningful as this happens. And it may be driven up or down by this, but uh, it will become less meaningful over a period of time. So... You know, those of us who watch commodities are going to have to start watching what the Chinese are doing, what prices they're paying. Is there a way we can monitor that? Well, uh, there's news released, and, you know, typically these long-term contracts tend to get repriced every year or so. I mean, the, the, the Japanese have been doing this for years, um, and I think the Chinese have kind of messed up their game to some degree. But they would, in the coal market and iron ore market, they would, once a year, they would sign one-year contracts. and the whole market would watch with great interest what prices were put on that, those one-year contracts. Um, so I think we're going to have to start watching 
hopefully more transparently than we've seen so far. Presumably this will further infuriate the Americans who like to see their commodities traded in dollars. Yes, um, yeah, because those long-term contracts need not be priced in dollars. They can be priced in whatever currency the two parties agree. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, I mean, I suppose a, another another um, outcome of this is that the dollar as a pricing mechanism for various commodities is going to become less important as these long-term contracts get, uh, get signed. Now, a phrase I've heard you uh, utter in conversation, and indeed I've seen you post on, the, uh, uh, on Global Edge Investors, is possible gold slingshot coming. What do you mean by that? Well, basically it's an upward, a sharp upward movement in, in the price of gold after it's been depressed. I mean, after the slingshot's been pulled back, the, uh, the uh, gold price should shoot higher. And what's going on there is something I've noticed for years in the commodity markets is when you have a very strong cyclical move in one year, and we had one last year in gold, when the gold price shoots up and makes a high in May and then falls off for some months, the whole market, you know, becomes sort of stuck on the idea of, well, it's going to happen again. And it very rarely happens two years in a row. So this year, a lot of people decided that they would, that we might see an important top in gold in April or May. And they started selling their gold shares. So we got a peak in gold shares, um, uh, was it 16th of April, I think it was, from memory. Just below seven hundred dollars, six ninety something. Uh, mm-hmm. That was the peak in the in the gold price, and you know, selling main gold. Yeah, selling main going way was in the minds of lots of people. They jumped the gun. They started selling in mid-April because seven hundred dollars seemed high enough. Um, I think a lot of money uh, this year is now on the sidelines, waiting for the low in the gold price. And they are prepared, I think, to wait until August for that and expect, perhaps they're expecting the gold price to get pulled down um, by uh, a drop in equities. And uh, it may happen, actually, but, you know, it also may happen that gold surprises them and starts moving higher. And as it moves higher, I think that money on the sidelines will start to come in. So that's going to add an upward acceleration to the gold price. And so you get that movement, that pullback from 698 to 650 or whatever, 640, so whatever the low proves to be. And by the way, it could be lower, but let's say 640-ish. Uh, and then you might get a very quick 50 or $100 added onto the gold price over a matter of a few weeks as that money comes back into gold. And what's going on there, just to summarize, is people uh, have bets on the cycle being the same as last year. And it's rarely the same two years in a row. I've got two comments on that. Firstly... Um, my technical analysis is nothing like as sophisticated as yours, but there is so much support for for gold at, at about 640, uh, just above 640, at 640, just below 640 in the 630s. There's so many different uh, moving averages and trend lines and various other things that, that are indicators of support. It, it it would really surprise me to see the go pro, the gold price go below say 625 it would really surprise me and i think we might pull back to 640 we're at about uh, the high 650s at the moment we might see 640 or 630 but below there I, I just i don't expect it the other thing 
Sell in May Go Away, the fantastic run that we saw in the Huey began in May 2005 and ended in May 2006. And the Huey went from, what, 165 or something like that in May 2005 to a high of 400. And that's just the index. Some of the miners within that index... uh, had stratospheric gains. Well, I think I, that's a that's a very good point. And I think what I I, I should do is uh, I'll post it on GEI. Is I should look and see what happened the year before that move out of a May low, and see if you had people positioning themselves the same way they're positioning themselves this year. That is that they're out of the gold market, but they'd like to be in it. Um, and what I'm watching like a hawk right now is I'm watching the volume. I'm watching the volume every day in, in GLD. I'm watching the volume in, in, in uh, GDX and, and gold stocks in general. And what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a low on very light volume. And we were almost there in recent days. And then uh, this week, uh, the, actually the day the stocks dropped sharply, uh, was it Thursday? Um, um, we Yes, Thursday. Um, we got a pretty... Sharp drop in, in, in the gold price, about $10. And we got a sharp drop in the Huey, which was about $10 as well. And that came on reasonably heavy volume. Not alarming volume, but reasonably heavy volume. And what we saw yesterday, Friday, was we saw a rally back on very light volume. So to me, mm-hmm. you know, it's got to go back down. And, you know, it's got to go back down and test the lows, at least the lows of Thursday, and probably back towards 640. And if that happens on very light volume, if the volume dries up, it means the sellers are finished. And uh, the gold prices and the gold shares are ready to go back up again. Now, what about if it breaks 625? What would you be thinking then? Well, you know, I'm not that alarmed if it goes down to 600. I'd probably sit with my positions. Uh, I do have a certain amount of cash, by the way. I think, as we mentioned in earlier shows, when I sell things, and I have been selling a bit, I tend to reinvest only part of the proceeds in uh, in gold stocks and, and oil stocks. Some of the money is going into um, double bear. Uh, actually, some of the money is going to puts on the S&P, and some of the money is going into uh, QID and uh, SDS. So why are you buying bear funds if you think the Chinese are possibly putting their money into American stocks? It's a hedge, and um, also... Um, you know, I'd like to perhaps turn away from the gold market for a minute and talk about uh, a ratio that I like to look at, and I think it's telling us something important right now, and that's a ratio of S- the S&P 500 to bonds. It's the stock-to-bonds ratio, and uh, I, we've already talked about this in GEI, and I'll talk about it some more there, but basically, if you take... Um, the SPX, and you divide it by TLT, which is an ETF for the bonds, you're going to get a ratio between stocks and bonds. And um, what I've observed many times in the past is that um, stock market will be rallying while bond yields are beginning to creep higher. And so in the very final stages, like the last few weeks of a rally, you're going to see stocks going up while bonds are dropping. And essentially what's happening is the ground is being cut out from under the stock market. But the bulls are just too preoccupied with movements in in the stock market. They can't see it. What happens is that ratio spikes up. It creates a nice, sharp upward move 
almost parabolic. And then at some point, that parabolic movement gets broken, and uh, the spike, the right side of the spike, uh, comes in and the market drops. And that can bring a very sharp drop of hundreds of points in the stock market over a matter of a few weeks. Now, we've just seen a spike like that in this ratio. Uh, it looks to me like the spike is complete, and I think Thursday was an important part of that completion. And it looks now, and I would say starting next week probably, it looks now like the market is poised to drop pretty sharply. Uh, now, it may not go straight down. It might bounce. Uh, it might even make new highs. But I'm watching this ratio between the stocks and the bonds as an indication of what's happening. So let me try and put all this together that we've been talking about. The Chinese have been moving their money out of bonds, um, and that means that bond interest rates have been going up. Um, bonds, as bond interest rates go up, obviously bonds go down in price. Bonds have been dropping, and that's been undermining stocks. Stocks have been in their sort of single-mindedly bullish attitude and been rallying despite the, 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 the rise in interest rates. And now the ground's being cut out, and people who look at both stocks and bonds see that suddenly bonds are more attractive. And so I think we're going to see a shift and people are going to try and get into bonds. They're going to try and get out of stocks. And we could see a pretty sharp movement. Selling man go away is going to work in the stock market, but it might not work in, in gold. Well, Mr. Hampton, what can I say? It's been a pleasure. Where, you give out the web address. www.globaledgeinvestors.com And uh, if you go to that website, you will find a link that will take you to YouTube and there, ladies and gentlemen, you can see me shaving off my beard or having my beard shaved off me. And uh, even if you have no interest in stocks whatsoever, which if you've listened this far is not likely, <laughs> uh, it will still provide entertainment. So is, is, is this a new trend we should be looking for? Shave in May and go away? <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. I like that. <laughs> Mike's thanks very, thanks very much. Okay, I'll see you next time. Thanks for Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight, with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.